Welcome to Trinity. We're a church family learning how to follow Jesus in the city of Nottingham. Our vision is to see the church on fire and the city alive. from um, Revelation 4 and it's the whole chapter. So, after this I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it and the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Ruby A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of light, rumblings and pells of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were were blazing. There are the seven spirits of God. Also, in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, round the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with the eyes all round, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. This is the word of the Lord. It's good to be here tonight. I had a a lot of fun preaching this message this morning, so hopefully this is as much fun for me and also for you. (laughs) That would be good. As I was... um, Actually, preparing uh, to preach, even just this morning, I took the unusual step of going out for a run. And uh, so I was doing that. I was remembering the first sermon I ever preached uh, when Amy and I moved to California. This is probably about 15 years ago. And uh, we spent three and a half years on staff at a church. And about three weeks into our time there, The lead pastor of the church, a guy called Todd, who some of you will have seen, he's been here before, he's going to be here quite soon again, called me on the Friday. Now, some of you will know this, in America, church also happens on Sunday. And Todd called me on the Friday and said, Johnny, I've had an idea. Now, when Todd says he's had an idea, that's something to be concerned about, uh, particularly when it's on Friday. He said, I think, I think, I think you're going to preach with me on Sunday. Now, I'd gone to America basically to hide. I hadn't planned to really do very much. I just wanted to get a suntan and improve my golf game. Uh, But God, and in fact, in this case, Todd had different ideas. 
And um, so he gave me just a little bit less than 48 hours notice to get ready. I don't remember a lot about the specifics of the sermon I preached or helped him preach. We kind of tag-teamed it. I remember just the sheer panic, 48 hours of sheer panic. And then I remember being just overwhelmed and overjoyed that it was over. There's one other thing I remember, a quote, which because I learned everything that I was about to say for fear of getting something wrong, I learned and still have at my disposal. Matt Redman, the worship leader, I would say the Charles Wesley of our generation said, whenever we face up to the glory of God, we soon find ourselves face down in worship. Probably the best thing I said. A a direct quote of somebody else. (laughs) Potentially the best thing I'm going to say this evening. You be the judge. We've been in a series on Revelation for some time now. Some time. Some weeks. We will be in the series for some weeks, maybe some months, until we uh, hopefully, potentially arrive at the end of the book at some point. And the letter, it is, it is a letter, it's a prophecy, and it's written to a series of churches. It begins with this extraordinary vision that John has of Jesus. And we said this a number of weeks ago, this is Jesus, but not as we are used to thinking of him. And that really becomes the doorway into this experience of Jesus. And Jesus, having been revealed to John, speaks out seven letters. His, if you like, his kind of opinion on seven churches. And because those are to seven churches and numbers are really important in Revelation, seven being the number of completion, we take it that these are also letters to the whole church, the complete church. And so over the last seven weeks, we've been looking at what those letters say because we understand that Jesus actually through these letters is speaking something not just to individual churches 2,000 years ago, but to you and I today and to this church at this time in this place. And now we move on from these seven letters and we're into, I suppose, the rest of the book. This is going to unfold before us and it is going to get much more intense. This is typically the moment where if churches are brave enough to take revelation on, they stop. Right? The end of the letters, this is the intelligible bit. We're going to put it down here and tell the people we'll return to it at a later date and then just bury it. We are carrying on bravely, folks. Amen. And what happens as John takes his next steps is that he sees something more. And I'm going to focus tonight on the first thing he sees, an open vision of the glory of God. And I want to speak tonight about what I believe to be our highest calling as human beings. The thing that we are on the earth to do. I want to see and give you a vision of worship and of the glory of God. So Jesus, show us your glory. And here's what John says as he begins the next phase of this odyssey, this extraordinary adventure uh, through Revelation. After this, chapter 4, verse 1, after this I looked. Notice how I'm holding the Bible with one hand. Practicing what I preach. And there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me, like a trumpet said, come up here. 
And I'll show you what must take place after this. After this, I look, after this uh, download of these letters to these churches have been given, after this, I looked. Revelation, as we've experienced it so far, has been a multi-sensory journey. John is being taught to, and you and I through it, are being taught to engage our senses in a different way and to experience God in a multi-sensory way. It was interesting. Sam, as he shared this uh, sense he had tonight of experiencing God in the room using his ears. It's fascinating to think how God does that. And this is what John is experiencing too. He says, after this, I looked... And then it says, and there before me was a door standing open. Now, actually, in the original language, it's, it's not there before me was. It's simply a command. After this, I look and behold and look. That's literally what it says. Now, that command and look or behold is the most common command in Revelation. 47 times that command Appears. And there are further 77 related terms throughout the book. That is a common command. And we've looked at some of the context here, but, but John and the churches are experiencing a difficult time. And again and again, Jesus is saying, Look, what is around you, don't look at that, but look. Look beyond what is immediately before you to something else. And there before me was a door standing open in heaven. It's interesting, actually, just to observe as an aside, the second most common command in Revelation is fear not. And the two are connected. It's by looking beyond the immediate and looking into God's reality and not our own that we're enabled to fear not. So John looks, and as happens in chapter 1 as well, he looks and he hears a voice. And this voice is the same voice Notice what he says, the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet. That happens in chapter 1, verse 10, for those of you who remember that sermon. Who remembers that sermon? Absolutely no one. Of course not. I barely do, and I preached it. And a voice I first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. This is an invitation. An invitation, come up here, come up here, and I'll show you what must take place after this. This is an invitation into a different dimension of reality. It is an invitation into an open door into heaven itself. Now, what is heaven? We get so confused at this point. You know, heaven is a a powerful image in popular culture. We speak often about heaven. There are a number of songs about heaven. I, I just, I've enjoyed two today. Uh, I've enjoyed, and again, I, I notice there are, there, are, there are more recent songs than the ones I'm about to sing, because I might sing. Uh, Brian Adams, though, is the one that comes to my mind. Baby, you're all that I want. You know this one? No, none of you know this one. Yeah? Yeah? Finding it hard to believe this is heaven. Thank you. Jonathan's nodding. He likes it. I could carry on, but I won't. Um, there's also that one from the film, Show Me Heaven Cover. That's a beauty. I was listening to that earlier. Brilliant. So heaven's a powerful thing in popular consciousness, but there's so much misunderstanding around it, even in the church. I think when we think of heaven, we often think of like some space 
some geographical space beyond the universe. So if you could possibly travel to the end of the universe, which I realize is impossible, given the kind of boundaries of time, and also the fact that the universe is infinite, if you could get beyond it, though, there would be heaven. That is actually not how the Bible envisions heaven. Heaven is not some far-off place that if we could travel at light speed, we could arrive at. Heaven is God's reality, and it is available and present here and now. Heaven is all around us. And there are moments in history, there are moments in time, and maybe you and I have experienced these, where heaven feels, it it is revealed to be that way, it is revealed to be close. There are actually particular places in the world where people say, you know, often I experience God's presence in that place. I, it's like I, in that place, I, I'm in heaven. It's, I have an experience of a, it's like a thicker sense of reality. I'm going to try and explain it to you in a moment, but it's very difficult to do. But heaven is God's reality and it is typically invisible to us, but there are moments of unveiling where the veil between heaven on, and earth is is torn. I have one particular experience that comes to mind as I think about this. And it was a, a, a festival called Soul Survivor. It's actually the uh, a festival called Momentum, and it's probably 2012, 2013, something around that time. It's about a decade ago. And at the end of the, the sermon, my cousin actually was leading the worship at the time. His name's Tim. He was on a church weekend away a few weeks ago. And he began a song, and I've got a recording of the song, and I, I've listened to it since 100 times, 200 times, I don't know. But as he was singing this song, it, it was a completely spontaneous song, and he began to, to sing over the room, and I was praying for somebody, and I, it, it was like I was aware of an atmosphere that was unlike anything I'd ever experienced before. The word I would use to describe it would be, would be it had a profound beauty to it. It was so beautiful. The song was beautiful. It was, it, you know, as I said, I've listened to it many times. But it was more than that. The moment had a weight to it. And I knew in that moment that this was, I would, God was near. That's what heaven, that's kind of a moment of unveiling. And you, you may have had some of those things. My, most of my experiences like that, of heaven in that way, have been in worship. So we see uh, John is invited into heaven in some way, to an open view of heaven. He's invited to see something of heaven. And what he sees is that at the center of heaven, in the center of God's reality, is a throne. What do we learn about the throne? The first thing we learn about the throne is there's someone on it. That is good news. The throne is not vacated. This, this picture of heaven, the throne room, the throne room in a, in a, a kingdom would be the, the control center. It's the place where the decisions were made, where the government happened. And here on the throne we have God, once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. How often does it feel in your life and my life like the throne is empty? 
like the world's kind of running out of control, like this, the chaos that we see before us is unmanageable and untamable. Whether that's kind of this cosmic environmental chaos, whether that's earthquakes, whether that's your own personal life. But the throne's occupied. There is no situation in history that is unmanageable. God is on the throne. And that was good news to the church back then when John received this vision. It was good news to a church that was under threat of extinction under the emperor Domitian who had killed 40,000 Christians. It was good news then and it is good news now. The first thing we see in the throne is that someone's on it. Well, who's the one on it? Well, it says this, listen to this. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. Now, there's probably deep significance in jasper and ruby. I think the key significance I want to draw out tonight is that they're beautiful. So the one who's on the throne has beauty about who he is. Then we hear a little bit more about him. There is a song that's sung to him in verse 8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the all-ruling one, the almighty one. So he's on the throne. He's the one who has government over what's happening in creation. There is no situation beyond his government. He's beautiful and he is almighty. Nothing extends before his possibility. And he is holy, holy, holy. A three-time repetition. You see politicians do this when they really want to make a point. Preachers do this as well. When they really want to make a point, threefold repetition, meaning I really mean this. This holiness is God's fundamental attribute. This is who he is in and of himself. It means whole, other, not like us. So his mercy is holy. His mercy is not like human mercy. His grace is holy. His judgments are holy. His goodness is holy. Everything that is in him is holy. And he is the one who was and is and is to come. He is not about to abdicate the throne. He is staying there for all time. This is the one who's on the throne. What's happening from the throne? Well, we see there are flashes of lightning. Verse 5, from the throne come flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. This is a picture of power. Those of you who have read uh, the Old Testament, you know this picture of Exodus and Moses arrives at the mountain with the people of God and at Sinai and there are peals of thunder, there's lightning, it's a picture of God's power and the people draw back from the mountain because of their terror. This is the same God. He is powerful, he's beautiful, he's powerful. But what's encircling the throne? Verse 3, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. This is a picture of God's mercy, his faithfulness. The one who's powerful is also merciful and faithful. And then in front of the throne, verse 5, in front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These lamps are a picture of the purification and healing that comes in the presence of God. And there are seven spirits. These are the seven spirits of God. Seven, and again, is the number of completion. This speaks about the total availability of the presence of God in heaven. 
as available as I might have experienced him in that tent in Shepton Mallet of all places when my cousin Tim was singing that song. As available as he was then, and he was more available than perhaps I've experienced him since. He's perfectly available like that in his reality, in his glory. There is no limit to his availability. And there's also a sea of crystal. Now, sea in scripture is an image. I know we're going heavy on the imagery, but Revelation goes heavy on the imagery. Sea is a picture of chaos. Notice the tranquility in the sea. In God's presence, all chaos is stilled. John here points forward to the end of the book where we read that in the new heaven and the new earth, there is no longer any sea. All of that will be brought into subjection. But for now, it is still. And then we have around the throne. We've looked on the throne, from the throne, encircling the throne, in front of the throne. Now around the throne, there are 24, verse 4, surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold. Some scholars say this is taken from the emperor Domitian, who had 24 So it would turn out bodyguards. And he would also have priests wearing golden crowns with him. I think, though, this is a reference to 12 plus 12. 12, the number of tribes of Israel and the number of disciples. These are the whole people of God, the elders gathered around the throne. That's all well and good, but that's not the main point. What you need to understand is this. Look what they're up to. Verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fell down, fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, and there goes the song. Here's my message tonight. The central concern of everyone in the vicinity of the throne is this. Worship. Singing? Yeah. Never less than singing, but so much more. Sacrifice? Yeah, that's a strong biblical image of worship. That's happening too. But more than that, surrender. They cast their crowns before him. See, my conviction and I think I have it on good authority, is that the highest calling of any human life is worship. But seeing comes before singing. Seeing always precedes singing. If we're going to be worshipers of God, worshiping Him not just in this place, throughout our lives we have to see God. We're only able to sing if we've seen. Daryl Johnson puts it this way. The single most reliable indication that our vision is clear is that we are a worshiping people. People who worship with their lips and hearts, with their minds and bodies. People who worship with their words and deeds. People who surrender everything to the one who sits on the throne. This means that a deficiency in worship is always indicative of a deficiency in vision. 
If we don't know how to worship, not just in here, it's part of it, but out there, it's because we haven't seen. We haven't seen him. We haven't seen his glory, his beauty. He is so beautiful. I love that song. I'm not going to sing it. You are beautiful beyond description, too marvelous for words, too wonderful for understanding like nothing ever seen or heard. Who can grasp your infinite wisdom? Who can match your wisdom and love? You are beautiful beyond description, majesty enthroned above. And I stand, I stand in awe of you. I stand, I stand in awe of you, holy God, to whom all praise is due. I stand in awe of you. We sing when we've seen. We don't just want to have moments in his glory, though, do we? We want to know what it is to live life in his glory. To live I suppose to live with the veil torn. The veil between heaven and earth. To live lives on earth but saturated with the glory and the presence of God. I think that's what God wants for his people. And the purpose of being here in a place like this and gathering in a place like this is this is the gymnasium. This is where we train to live in his glory. And I speak for myself. When I lose passion for worship, passion is because I've lost vision and usually that's because I'm looking at the wrong thing. And looking at myself, my own concerns, my own life, the outcome of my own decisions perhaps, and have failed to look at him. What is it that captures our vision? Well, so often it is ourselves. In the church, so often we settle for less than worship. We settle for entertainment. Remember what Tozer said, that people who don't know how to worship will ask to be entertained. There is just a phenomenal movement of entertainment that is uh, quashing worship in the church in these days. And people like me, in in an attempt to kind of cajole people into some kind of emotional response, begin to kind of pull different levers, desperate for a result. This is particularly difficult, I think, in these days as congregations shrink. And we think, well, maybe there's some way. Yeah, I've been to churches in America that raffle cars to get people to church. That's messed up, man. Car? You know, if you tasted the presence of God, you wouldn't take that car. You wouldn't swap anything for that. 
Significantly, this is not a future vision. I think many people approach Revelation 4 and we think that it's a vision of the future. This is what, I think this is where the idea comes that when we go to heaven, we'll be doing basically singing forever. I think it would be a good idea to enjoy singing when you, before you go. There will be, I think, some singing. I hope there is. But this is actually what's happening now. You want to get a vision of the future, read the last two chapters. This is what's happening now. And so if this is happening now, I think what John is teaching us is that this is what a life that's properly ordered on earth looks like. So where do we get our picture, our vision of what we're to be doing in this story of worship? I think the ones who we need to look at are the elders. They experience the presence of God. They're before the throne. Here's the thing. We are called to live lives in full view of the throne. That's it. And I know that's hard. It's really difficult. But that's the gig. That's the jam. That's the thing. That's it. To live lives in full view of his glory. And if we do that, that will be so compelling and so beautiful to a world that's saturated with human claims at glory. It will make all the difference. So how do we do that? It looks like surrender. I said the highest calling of any person is worship. The highest form of worship, I believe, is surrender. The elders cast their crowns. Where did they get the crowns? Presumably, they're in heaven. He gave them to them. And every time they hear the song, every single repetition that the living creatures do, oh, the elders are saying to each other, all 24 of them, this is a good one. This is a good one. You heard this one before. Like, yeah, I just heard it. They've been singing this for thousands of years. It's a good one. Let's do it. Shall we do it? Let's do it. On their faces, throwing their crowns. It never gets old. Isn't that amazing? What a vision of worship. It never gets old. That's what worship is. It is the surrender that never gets old. That is the posture that keeps on giving. So how do we do it? This Tuesday on Alpha, a member of our group said, you guys talk all about surrender. He's in the room. He said, how do I do that? I thought, what a great question. It's never occurred to me to tell anyone that. I just thought if I repeated the same thing again and again, people would get it. But it seemed not unreasonable that my friend asked that question. So here is my answer. Simply put, another abstract value You know somebody surrendered because they are willing to obey. What does surrender look like? It looks like hearing and obeying. The fruit of surrender is obedience. Then the question is, well, how do you obey? Well, I can't help you with that. That's going to look different for every person. But firstly, we hear and then we obey. Let me tell you a little bit about what this looks like for me at this moment. Amy shared a few months ago, I think here, maybe in the evening as well, about a story, a, a kind of opportunity that we were given as a family um, to consider fostering to adopt. Now, Amy and I, as often happens in marriages, were on 
separate journeys, going on separate journeys together and doing our best to understand and honor each other in that. Amy was at yes before the social worker had finished her sentence. I took a little bit longer than that, let me just say that. And it was very, very difficult. Some umming, some ahhing, and also some erring, and some waiting. And I got to a place in my heart where I said, Lord, if this is your will, I have to say I don't want to do this in my flesh. I've done the sleepless nights. I've done it four times, or three times, but once I did it with two children, and that's twice as hard. I don't want to do this, but if this is what you're asking me, I will do it. And then we, we shared this with our staff team. We had this amazing moment. We, we, had, we had a moment of God's glory. It was a beautiful moment of prayer and worship on our staff retreat, and that was special. And at the end of it, they gathered around us, and they prayed for us, and they, we wept together. It was stunning. And the next week, we were expecting to, to bring this child home. We passed our adoption a training. We did it all in a month. It's like a whistle-stop tour. usually takes about a year. But God had got us ready, and then the next morning we were called, and they said, look, the baby's been born. The baby's about three weeks old, which is late last year. But right now the baby's with the family, and that's what we're going to try. It was a massive shock. Difficult for Amy. I think for me initially, very difficult as well. Had got to that place of readiness, and then it stopped. It was, it was very strange. And then, um, after a little while, if I'm honest, my dominant emotion was relief. And then just a couple of weeks ago, we had another phone call. This time, another child. And uh, we've been on this journey for the last couple of weeks. Very, very similar. Very similar. And I had to do the same journey I'd done before again. And Amy again, before the social worker had finished. This tells you a little bit about the posture of our hearts. <laughs> In general, she was at yes, but I was, I, I was still kind of riding on the relief, and I had to go all the way through that journey again. And I said, Lord, I got there. I was like, Lord, I'm surrendered to you. If this is your will for my life, I probably wouldn't choose this at this point, but if this is what you are asking of me, Let's do it. That was last week. And the next day, Amy had a phone call with the social worker. She said, no, they found another family. It's not yours. We don't know the outcome. But the worship isn't about the outcome. We don't worship him because he's going to promise us a certain outcome. The purest worship is surrender. Surrender whatever it takes simply because he is the one who's on the throne. He's beautiful beyond description. He's worthy of everything. And he is the governor. He governs the whole creation, and he governs my life, and he governs your life. I am calling you to consider what that kind of worship will look like in your body, in your life, in your heart, in this moment. Amen. Maybe you would stand with me.